danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 369 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. Getting, we've done so many Thinking Poker dailies, I'm, I'm getting my interest confused. <laughs> uh, from Owings Mills, Maryland, I'm Andrew Brokus. From Las Vegas, Nevada, soon to be Laughlin, Nevada, Carlos Welch. Uh, and this is exciting. I think this is actually the first time you and I have just done like a traditional... Uh, intro for an episode there's a weird milestone but <laughs> you know we've, we've done solo episodes we've done interviews together but the, the interview that we did together i just recorded an, an intro for it myself um so now here we are doing a, a proper intro for for like a standard show where we've got a guest coming up and you and i are going to do a strategy segment it feels good man it does it does and, and maybe we have many more of these in 2022 yeah, and I don't know, uh, 369 feels like a special number to me because it's like 369, you know, like there's a, a relationship yeah, between this. Yeah, it's like, the, uh, you may not know this, but it's the uh, uh, <laughs> intro to a Yin Yang Twin song. That, uh, that's what I think. I, <laughs> you're correct. That 369, I damn she fine. <laughs> Get low. Oh, that might be Lil Jon's song, but, you know, I get those two confused. Like, they have so many songs together that I don't know which is which, but I think that might be Lil Jon's song. But it's funny, when I hear 369, that's what I think of. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that is the first time I heard of it. <laughs> uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. It's been a good one so far. Good, yeah, I liked your, um, your, your tweet about uh, the... the was it the numbers are higher in January 22 <laughs> yeah, the, than they were of January 21? Yeah, so I tweeted yesterday that the January 2022 numbers are much higher than the January 2021 numbers. Also, COVID seems to be skyrocketing. Yeah. <laughs> so that was reference to, when I say numbers, my um, poker results from the last two January. So last January, over the course of the entire month, I ended up losing like 2,500. And this January, four months in, I have a 25K score uh, from last night. So, yeah, the, um, the poker graph is looking um, um, similar to the um, COVID graph, but... <laughs> Obviously, one is uh, much better than the other. Right. Well, keep keep on the right side of that equation. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So we have, a, I think, a great guest today. I think this interview went um, fantastically well. Uh, guest is Brad Wilson, who hosts the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast, on which uh, both Carlos and I have been repeat guests. So about time we made uh, Brad do a little work for us. <laughs> Come down yeah. to our show. Yes, it was definitely good to um, talk to Brad on our turf. Um, but it was a very good conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I agree. I think there's both, um, you know, there's like hard strategy in there of kind of pretty specific things to like make you better at poker, but I think also kind of soft strategy of how to approach like thinking about poker and um, things that you're doing 
away from the table to kind of reflect and improve as as a player. Yeah, and that that's pretty much my favorite part about poker these days is the off the felt stuff. Um, even off the virtual felt, given that I don't play much on the actual felt, but just the study away from the table is um, is probably the biggest draw uh, for me these days. That and the 25K scores. <laughs> well, exciting news for people who uh, want to study off of the table. Uh, there's a great tool called Range Trainer Pro, which uh, we've actually had. Uh, K.L. Cleeton is the um, at least one of the creators of, uh, of Range Trainer Pro has been on the show a few times, um, and there's really a lot that this tool can do. Even since the last time that I used it, um, you know, it's, it's a lot more than just providing preflop ranges. Now they have cells for a lot of spots, an opportunity to train versus a bot. And um, the reason I'm telling you all this is they have a huge sale going on right now, uh, 30% off of Range Trainer. Uh, so it rangetrainerpro.com if you use the code NITCAST30 that's N-I-T-C-A-S-T 30 you will get 30% off of this tool uh, and you know we don't plug stuff on this show that I mean obviously this is an affiliate link um, but you know we don't do a lot of this like this is a product that I think you and I have both used we know the people who are involved uh, in, in making it and like this is a this is a solid product yeah, I use it literally every day, whether I'm playing uh, or not when I'm playing. When I'm studying or coaching, uh, uh, it is so helpful with um, learning the theory stuff, which is something that for somebody like me, I never really got too heavy into running sims and a lot of the solver work that takes like heavy duty computer processing because all I have is a laptop. But this is a good way to um, get access to some of that information um, on an old cheap computer like the one I have. And I know a lot of you guys have these same sort of systems. So, yeah, I highly recommend uh, Range Trainer Pro. Yeah, so once again, rangetrainerpro.com, and you'll want to use the code NITCAST30, N-I-T-C-A-S-T-30. Uh, and then, of course, uh, other opportunities for studying. If, I mean, you're about to hear a strategy segment from Carlos and me, but if you want to hear those daily, you can get those at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thinkingpokerdaily. And that, again, you'll get, um, we, we say 10 minutes. Um, we just recorded one that was 20 minutes long, so <laughs> we pretty consistently give you more than 10 minutes of uh, strategy per day, often a lot more. Uh, and it's also a great way to um, keep the show going. So uh, thanks to everyone who has already supported us there. And uh, you know that could be a, a great New Year's resolution for you to start listening to Thinking Poker Daily. Yes. Uh, before we start with the strategy episode, let me just apologize to everyone who are listening to this intro, which I guess will be the same people who will be listening to the interview. Uh, but at the time when we recorded the interview, um, yesterday or the day before, can't remember, um, my, my voice was um, a little weak from I lost my voice on New Year's Eve not because I was like shirtless uh, fired off uh, uh, fireworks on, uh, at Times Square or wherever um, it's because I talked to my brother for three hours that night uh, I, I just want to ask the Photoshop experts out there if they can do anything <laughs> with this shirtless uh, Carlos firing off fireworks 
Let's not. Let's not do that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, my voice was a little weak, and it still uh, feels a little weak now, but not as bad as it did on the interview. So I just want to, uh, if you if you think there's something wrong with the sound quality, it's not an audio issue. It's a uh, a uh, vocal cord issue on my part. So I apologize. Good news is uh, Brad is extremely eloquent, um, so neither Carlos nor I had to do a ton of talking during this um, episode. And I actually I said this to, to Brad afterwards, and I think it's true. You know, I tend to think that um, uh, you know a lot of people it's, it's tricky to do interviews well, and you know some people that they, they say really insightful things, but they're like short, so you kind of have to ask a lot of questions or prompt them a lot. And then some people, you know, they'll they'll talk for a long time, and then it's sort of like your work as an interviewer is you have to figure out like when to sort of jump in and, and try to like change the the subject if they start to get rambling or something like that. And um, Brad, I think, did a fantastic job of like he he was just able to like go and just say a bunch of interesting like he wasn't rambling he was like saying you know he could talk for like five or ten minutes and it would just be like all good material where like it didn't really even require a lot of prompting from us so um you do not have to listen to uh, carlos's scratchy voice or my just always grating voice uh, terribly much during the interview yeah you could tell he has a lot of podcasting experience uh, before we get to that, though, we do have a strategy segment for you. This question comes to us from Alex, who says, uh, I'm a big fan of the show. I really enjoyed Play Optimal Poker. It's the first poker book I've read, and I think it's helped improve my game exponentially. So that's awesome, and thank you for that, Alex. Uh, he says, I'm playing 1-2 No Limit at Boston Billiards in Nashua, New Hampshire. We're seven-handed. I'm under the gun with queens and raised $8. The button who's been very active calls, and the villain in the small blind puts in a three bet to $16. Now, I've been at the table for about two hours with this player and hadn't seen this player do much out of the ordinary. I was really confused with the small raise size with my under-the-gun open and button caller. I'd been playing fairly tight and thought this player could be baiting me into four betting if he had aces, kings, or ace-king. I didn't think ace-jack, king-jack, or pocket-jacks made a lot of sense, uh, because why would those hands want to play a bloated pot out of position when they would likely get called by myself or the button for only $8 more? Um, I mean, that logic kind of makes sense to me. I agree. It's, like, weird that he's using this size, and I do think any time that you see something weird at the table, that's, like, a particularly exploited... I mean, a lot of things are exploitative opportunities, but when you see something weird, be like, oh, I didn't expect that. Usually what that means is there's information there. You know, like, that's why it's weird, is that it's not something that comes up often, and there's probably a specific reason why the villain is doing it. You may or may not have access to that reason, but I think it is worth asking yourself the kinds of questions that Alex is, uh, is asking themselves right now. Yeah, I agree with that. And to, you know, steal some of your thunder, um, this is one of those spots where we can, you know, uh, in response to that, uh, do something exploratively ourselves which is just call uh, if you feel like your opponent is on a, a um, overly tight um, squeezing range you can just call here and as an exploit um, where you know because he's not you know using the correct size and being balanced he doesn't deserve to get us to four bad queens into his big hands and so this is an opportunity to just call like not necessarily just set mining but I'm kind of leaning towards that way. I'll be very willing to let go of an overpair in the right situation post-flop. And this guy may think he's um, baiting us in, but what he's done is given us an opportunity to potentially dodge a bullet. 
Yeah, you know, honestly, I wouldn't be that excited about formatting this anyway. Like, as a, you know, so we're, we're seven-handed. It's not quite under the gun, but, like, under the gun two at a nine-handed table. And then small blind squeezing, even if he'd used a larger size, I still think we're just calling. Like, I don't, I just, I don't think Queen's a great formatting hand versus the small blind uh, squeezing range in the first place. So really the question would be, like, should we be more inclined to four-bet because he's three-betting so small? And uh, I kind of agree with Alex. That I, I mean, I think a lot of people are just too passive in general and have, like, pretty strong squeezing ranges, and then the, the size is pretty suspicious. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of good reasons to just, just call here. Agreed. Um, Alex does call, uh, so does the button. So we go to the flop with, uh, I guess after rake, probably 40-ish dollars in the pot, um, 45. The flop is 8-5 deuce rainbow. Uh, the villain now checks, and I bet $15. So I guess the question is how much... Well, I'll give you Alex's reasoning first. Uh, I figured if the villain had ace their kings, they would continue betting, and I thought I would get called by ace-king, pocket jacks, or some combination of overcards. Um so yeah, how do you how do you like this bet once the villain checks? I love it. Um, the only thing, um, this is yeah, this is live, so we can't do what I like to do, which is go quarter pot. Uh, it probably doesn't have any one dollar chips on the table. It's been a while since I played live cash games, so I'm not sure how this works. But a fifteen is one of the smaller bets we can do here. Um, I kind of like it just to, um, in a way, like you know get a little bit of value from the worst hands in both opponents range without like like it seems like alex recognized that we have an overpair here but it's not like a big hand like overpairs traditionally are so this is kind of like a um a bet that shows the size of this bet shows that alex recognize recognizes the relative strength of his hand so i like it yeah, I do too. I will emphasize, I think um, it's f- pretty contingent on the assumption that the villain is not going to check aces or kings. Um, you could, because I, I am a, the, the one thing I'm a little wary of is Alex said that he didn't think like ace-jack or pocket-jacks made sense for pre-flop. Um, but then he's, he's mentioning like jacks as an example of a hand he'd like to bet into. And I think that's something to be cautious about. Maybe what's going on here is he's sort of like, well, it kind of doesn't make sense for him to have jacks, but like still maybe he does. Like he's, he's sort of not assigning 100% to his preflop read. Uh, and I think that's that's reasonable. But I think you do have to be careful about like the if you make a read on one street, you don't then want to like reintroduce. Like if you think he wouldn't have something based on the preflop action, you don't then want to like reintroduce it on the flop because it would be convenient for you if he had it now. Or something that goes the other way, where people introduce hands that would be inconvenient for them, and they're like, "Well, you know, I was worried about pocket twos," and you're like, well, "Wait, you didn't think he was going to have twos preflop, so why are you like worried about him flopping a set now?" Um, but yeah, so I, yeah. I think that like the value of this bet is, is pretty dependent on believing that the villain would check aces or, or would not check aces or kings. But I think that's a pretty reasonable assumption against a lot of these players. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and I think that the size is good also because he is recognizing that it's like kind of a thin bet. You know, um, jacks I guess is probably going to be willing to put some money in, but like ace king, you don't necessarily need or want to use a large size against that. Maybe he is hedging against the possibility the villain might be checking his or kings. Like, if we got check raised here, I'd probably just fold. Exactly. And that's why I want to bet small. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the hero does bet the, about a one-third pot, um, button folds, and the villain calls. 
He says, when the villain just calls, I believe I am ahead. So now we're looking at $75 in the pot. The turn is a jack and villain leads for 25. So now we've got the villain leading for one third pot. And Alex says, I think the villain could be bluffing at this jack with ace king or hit the jack with ace jack, king jack, or jack 10. Um, and again, I'm a little worried just because these aren't necessarily <laughs> like the ace jack, the king jack, the jack 10. Those were not hands that Alex thought were terribly likely based on the pre-flop action, especially this is the first we've heard of King Jack or Jack 10. Um, and in fact, he even yeah. said that he thought two overcard combinations, um, I guess he did say they might actually call the flop bet, but it's pretty hard for me to imagine Jack 10 is like check calling the flop here. Um, or squeezing pre. Yeah. Like these, 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 these combos are just literally falling out of the sky. Yeah. Out of nowhere. Uh, and we've done a, re- a relatively good job of ranging so far. So we definitely want to keep our our thoughts consistent throughout the hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty inclined to just call this. I'm leaning towards folding because I don't think he's done. I don't think he's going to be doing this way. He's king. Like, why would he do this way? He's king. Like, uh, that's a fairly aggressive thing to do. And if he, if we have some read that this guy's aggressive and, you know able to you know um do unorthodox take unorthodox lines like this then yeah i'll probably stick around for one more street but um it doesn't seem like we think this guy is like i think can't remember exactly how he put it but something like the guy hadn't been out of line or anything at this point i think leading here with ace king would be somewhat out of line yeah i agree with that i guess i'm more thinking i mean we are getting four to one um so we don't need to be good that often and i am allowing for the possibility like i think king jack and jack 10 are not so unlikely um ace jack pocket tens maybe pocket nines i mean i think you do sometimes see this small re-raise admittedly you see it more in position but you do sometimes see it where people are like they feel like they should re-raise because they think they have a good hand but they don't really want to put a lot of money in the pot i think that's the other time you see this this tiny re-raise uh, I mean, I guess the tens and the nines are fairly likely to bet the flop. Um, I guess I just don't like folding such a strong hand, and I know this is like a kind of anti-me thing to say, but um, it just—it's—I agree, it's kind of unlikely he has worse hands. It also feels kind of unlikely he has better hands. Um, I feel like whatever he's doing is pretty weird, and I'm, <laughs> I'm just not that inclined to fold an overpair getting four to one where it's like pretty hard for me to put him on a better hand i understand i understand that um the those feelings um like when i have those feelings i just tend to fold um <laughs> uh, but i i definitely understand the uh and tendency to call here as well at least for one more street but if we call turn and then call river then it's probably we're probably gonna end up throwing good money out the bat but i'm okay for one more street now I'm, um, I mean I, I've been keeping a running tab of, of what I thought was in the pot, and I feel like at this point there should be like 125 dollars or so in the pot. But uh, Alex says the river's an ace, and the villain leads for 30. Um, so unless the rake is enormous in this game, um, either he's had bet sizes wrong on some street, or the pot is actually larger than than he thought it was. Um, 
And I mean, this is just a disaster of a river card. <laughs> you know, the Ace King was like Ace King or Ace Jack, I guess, were, were two of the main hands you were hoping to be ahead of on the turn. And um, now you're losing to those, which, which Alex identifies. He says, I'm no longer beating any of the villains' bluffs besides King 10, which another like falling out of the sky. This is the first we've heard of King 10 showing up. Um, I'm still losing to any Ace X, Pocket Kings, now Ace Jack. Uh, I think I can fold this river, but I th- thinking there's a chance this player could have been overplaying King Jack or Jack Ten. Uh, I call getting five to one. So now he, five to one is what he'd be getting if there were actually one twenty-five in the pot. Um, yeah, I mean, so I'm I'm very inclined to fold at this point. I mean, I guess you wanted to fold the turn, so I imagine you're going <laughs> to fold now. Yeah, all he had to do was sneeze at this river, and I was going to fold. Now I, I don't know if we mentioned it uh, that the river was an ace. I feel like we might have skipped straight to uh, because we we're reading. We're kind of like reading parts of this in our head, um, but I don't think we said the river was an ace. But I think the listeners could tell based on the context clues, and yeah. I'm probably even folding on a safe river, so I'm definitely folding on this disastrous river. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the hero does get shown Ace Jack, so you know maybe that was part of my uh, reluctance to fold the turn was <laughs> the results oriented, knowing that he actually does show up with Ace Jack. But I don't know. I, I still think in real life I might not fold the turn, but I, I think on the river we, we truly even getting five to one. Um, I mean, you still need to win what. 16, 17% of the time. Um, I don't see how that happens. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, just let it go. This is that entitlement tilt coming in. Like, you got Delta Premium pre flop, and you feel like you deserve to either win or see if you won. Uh, and reality, like that thought process, just causes people to pay off so many river bets that just didn't need to be paid off. Well, thank you, Alex, very much for writing to us. Uh, And everyone, please enjoy our interview with Brad Wilson. Brad Wilson, Chasing Poker Greatness, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's uh, great to be on. Um, so I, I started to introduce you as a professional poker player, but I feel like that doesn't uh, fully in- encapsulate. You're sort of like the uh, the head of a, a media empire. How do you like to describe yourself? Uh, well, it's probably not very accurate to describe me as a professional poker player these days. I was just sort of reflecting on 2021, and 2021 is the year that I played the least amount of poker, I think in the last 17 or 18 years due to, you know, the podcast and growing a business, as I'm sure you know, is quite time consuming and quite involved. Um, so I don't really know how to describe myself other than uh, <laughs> poker coach. I think that's a thing that I've been doing just a ton of in the last year, content creator, uh, making courses, at some point in the last year, I know Carlos can relate uh, upping my copywriting and selling abilities because apparently you can't just make something and everybody just comes and buys it in droves. You actually have to you know, market and, and sell the thing too, which is foreign to lots of poker players and especially me. So yeah, it's I, I wear a lot of hats. I do a lot of things. So I don't really know how to describe myself either. 
Well, that's pretty solid. Do you want to give us like an overview of the, uh, the, the various contents that you create? Yeah. So the podcast, uh, chasing poker greatness is the major one. Um, I was attempting last year to produce five episodes a week. We kind of fell apart at the end of the year because of the holidays. And I launched uh, you know, a coaching for profit program, which is now my primary focus. It's what I devote most of my waking energy into um, and have a YouTube episode that goes out every week of Tactical Tuesday, which is the the one pure poker strategy episode of the podcast every week where me and my co-host John who's you know a longtime student he's gone from 200 no limit to crushing 1k no limit over the course of really his first year a uh, year and a half of playing online poker so that's been great just doing the strategic bit and then yeah i think that's all the the content that comes out uh, as of today, but we'll see in the future. That's quite a lot though. Five days a week. It is. <laughs> it, it's, it's more than a little. Um, but the thing about it for me is as you know, I think I, I've probably told you privately and Carlos, I love doing the show poker. The, the folks who play poker at a high level are my people. And, I just get a lot of joy out of interacting with them. And so making podcast episodes is not, for me, it's, it's not a hassle. It's a joy and I love doing it. And so hopefully, you know, once things behind the scenes with growing the business and, you know, the corporation of what I'm doing kind of are streamlined, my end goal is just to have as many great conversations, great interactions with the human beings that make up the world of professional poker as I can. In my, in my decade of doing poker podcasts, Brad is the only host where I've showed up for my episode and overlapped with him doing an episode with someone else and get a <laughs> chance to like hear him wrap up the last five or 10 minutes. He's just banging these things out back to back, which is pretty impressive. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> not planned when I when that happens, actually. <laughs> um, Enjoy it, though. I got a chance to meet some pretty good guys. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. You know, my I have I brought on an assistant last year who does a lot of the booking and scheduling and things like that, and she, you know, that's been another just godsend, really, just helping take one responsibility off my plate. And and I guess that's another thing that over this past year, as I'm reflecting has been just really good for me is bringing on folks that I trust to do the things that I used to kind of micromanage or just feel like I needed to do myself, you know, just, and that's something that I want to, yeah, I want to do more of heading into the future as well. So the way you described that, um, you said that uh, people who play poker, I think folks who play poker at, at a high level were your people. Um, how important is the at a high level qualifier? I mean, do you do you feel more of a like kinship with people who are really serious about the game than with, um, you know, sort of, I, I started to say amateur players, but there are some very serious amateurs as well, but you know, the more like casual players. So what a loaded question. Andrew, uh, I have to be, I feel like I'm on thin ice here, right? Like as I'm choosing my words, I need to be wise. Um, so to be 
to be honest, I mean, I love people, I guess, first and foremost, I've always loved people. I think I can remember going camping at my, with my grandparents and just talking to, you know, the elderly folks who would tell me their life stories. And I remember feeling captivated that this human being that I previously didn't know anything about, um, they've lived a rich, full life. And I've enjoyed hearing those stories. But to your question, when I started playing poker, I had one friend who was fully immersed in poker. And I've been a lone wolf for a lot of my poker journey. And I I think as both of you all know, it it can feel somewhat isolating. Uh, In Carlos's case, maybe that's a good feeling. Um, (laughs) But you kind of feel like the problems that you experience are just yours and the existential crises that you, you think in your head are just some, somehow isolated to you. And through the podcast and speaking with other high-level poker players, I've realized that they're not isolated to you and they're very common. And yeah, the type of person that, you know, when, when I was... 18 years old or 19 years old, I I was working at Applebee's and I told people I was going to be a professional poker player. I'm 38 years old now. That was probably 2003. So it was exciting and people laughed at me and probably nobody believed me, but the type of people that I have on the podcast are just like me. You know, at some point they decided that this was what they were going to invest their life into and it resonated with them. And, you know, it was a strong, strong pull. And yeah, so those people, they're my people. You know, they are, I see myself in the majority of my guests. They're my tribe. And yeah, it's, that's, that's been a, one of the joys and honors and unexpected surprises that has come along with doing Chasing Poker Greatness. So 2003, I'm guessing that was maybe even before Moneymaker won the uh, the main event. Like the, we sort of think of as like the start of the poker boom. The professional poker was already on your um, on your radar. Yeah, so it's kind of a funny story. I played spades in high school. I was obsessed. Yes, I was fondly. <laughs> yeah, I, I went through a spades phase. Yeah, I was. Wait a minute! Wait, wait, wait! I'm sorry to interrupt. I never knew about your space phase, Andrew. That that's that that's a big um uh um I don't know the right word for it. Um sticking point for me uh is that there's so many guys I've met through poker who kind of got into poker early it, um by playing it with their families. But my family growing up and um I I know this is true in the South, but maybe across the country. Uh, black families tend to like gravitate towards spades as opposed to poker. And I don't know if I've ever met any other poker players who were into spades as much as they are into poker. So I'm kind of, and for Andrew, I've never heard you mention spades. This is awesome. Carlos, I feel like we talked about this the the very first time you were on the show. I mean, we we definitely talked about the, um, you know, black families not gravitating as much towards poker. I mean, maybe the spades thing didn't come. I, I certainly didn't like play spades 
seriously, but it was, you know, with, with my family in particular with um, the, the woman who was my father's wife at the time, like I played poker with my father's family, but she wasn't as into poker. So like when we played card games with her, um, we would often play spades, although that actually kind of got old because she didn't like if, um, if you already had your, your tricks made, but then you, you uh, cut her and, and prevented her from making her bid, uh, she would get very upset about that and, and quit the game. Uh, I think we did. I, I remember mentioning mentioning spades uh, when you asked me if I played poker growing up with my family, but I don't recall you telling me that that you um, played spades when you were younger as well. I could just be forgetting. That was like a decade ago now. <laughs> yeah, it's a good game. Yeah. So tell me about your spades adventures, um, Brad. Or like how 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 big was spades um, for you growing up? So growing up, I guess it didn't get big until my mom remarried to my my current stepdad. And that happened around the sixth grade. And I, I think it was in the ninth grade. So I was probably 14 years old or 13 or 14. And my stepdad played spades in college. And I don't know if you guys remember excite.com or pogo.com but they had a bunch of they had they had a bunch of card games that you could play and my stepdad wanted to play some spades and so i i actually now that i think about it i did play some spades before then but just with you know friends or family friends or whatever so i had no idea about strategy or anything like that and i played a game with my stepdad and after the game i was like what do you think like how how well did i how well did i play and he was like oh you're terrible <laughs> and like that was um you know if if somebody wants to push my buttons uh to get me to try really hard doing a thing that's probably the perfect thing that you can say to me um so from then on, you know, me and my stepdad would play spades together. My mom started playing spades and uh, my mom would always tilt me because like she couldn't count cards and was missing some like strategic nuance of the game. But for me to learn how to play spades, I mean, yeah, I guess it's just kind of how I'm wired, but it, it became an obsession ever, ever since he told me like, yeah, you, you, you didn't do do well. You didn't play well. Uh, I, I was in lit class in high school, mapping out spade strategies, really trying to understand what was going on in the game, what the strategy ought to look like. And from there, I, the way that I entered poker was I was staying up late at night as a 14 year old and during the summer, probably overnight, you know, three or four in the morning and was on Yahoo Spades and was watching a game for some reason. I can't even remember why. I, I think actually my username was something like I'm a nobody. And my friend's uh, username was I'm a somebody. And <laughs> there, there was like a, so, somebody who was playing, playing Spades and their name was like, I'm a something, you know, like I'm a, I'm a spades dummy or just something like that. And I was like, ah, let me, let me look at this other I'm a, you know, so I, I'm like watching them play. And for those of you that played spades, you may recall like 
whenever things would kind of go to hell in a handbasket, um, if players would start playing slow, you know, they'd start taking like three minutes every single turn. It would be just kind of the worst, you know, you just like are subjected to them taking max time for every single decision, which could draw out a game for like an hour. And this, this guy was getting lambasted by his partner for some play that he made. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I actually think that was a good play. Like, I think that was like high level strategy, you know? Um, so despite the fact that this dude is getting crushed by his partner verbally, uh, we started messaging and from there we started playing spades together and I didn't really know it at the time, but that, that human being is the reason why I got into poker. Um, we became friends. He lived in Florida. I lived in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, we played spades pretty much every day. As soon as I got home from school, we would fire up spades and uh, play three or four games. We were extremely competitive. I, I may have more yahoo.com email addresses than <laughs> any human in existence. Um, you know, we, we always sought perfection. I remember we, we just wanted to go like undefeated for as long as we could. And as soon as a record got to be like, you know, 30 and four or something like that, we would just like start over and try to build up new records. Um, and from there, you know, his mom sort of serendipitously was a dealer at a casino. She was a blackjack dealer. And so my friend fell into poker probably when he was 16 or 17 years old playing on Paradise Poker. Uh, and he told me about it. So I, I had some awareness of that probably in like 1999. I think also, you know, I watched Rounders back then too. I remember specifically being like a sophomore in high school, probably year 2000 or so watching rounders on a VHS tape in my basement and just loving, uh, just loving the movie, like really just like kind of entranced by the lifestyle as it was portrayed on rounders. Um, and then fast forward, you know, three years at Applebee's, uh, a friend of mine that, that same friend, Jason, my spades partner, he was, he went to a tournament at Foxwoods. And he was driving through Tennessee. It was around New Year's Day. He stopped um, to see me and had a printout of his results in Foxwoods. And he had gotten something like 25th or 24th. And it was like for $2,700, which for 19-year-old me, my, the best day of my life monetarily at that point was like 200 bucks. So 2700 was like an insane amount of money. And... You know, he was like, he had on his Walkman and his headphones and, I, and his sunglasses. And I'm like, yo, what's all that? He's like, oh, it's my poker gear. You know, it's my poker gear. <laughs> um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life at 19. I, I took a year off after high school because quite frankly, I, I hated school. I, I slept through more of school than I was attentive. It, it just never resonated with me. But when he stopped there in Chattanooga after being in Foxwoods, and he had stories too, you know, I think like uh, he played against Amir Vahidi, Kathy Liebert, and Huck Seed. And, and I think Amir Vahidi won the thing and Kathy Liebert got second or maybe Huck got second. But he described playing against Huck Seed, you know, and 
he, he told me that like if Huxseed had been in rounders instead of Johnny Chan, then that would have been Huxseed, you know, like uh, he was that caliber of player that he was battling against. And so, yeah, it was a very romantic feeling that I had from pursuing poker. And about a week after he went back home to Florida, I just called him up and said, Hey man, if I move to Florida, if I save up money, move to Florida, would you coach me and, and teach me what you know about poker? And he was pumped because he was pretty alone on his journey. And that was really it. You know, I, I spent four months working at Applebee's. I told everybody that I knew that I was going to be a professional poker player. I saved up, I believe it was 3000 but maybe $4,000. Um, I worked over time. I bought every book that there was on poker. I, I read those books an hour before my shift started and an hour after they ended every single day, I brought them to work with me and kind of just moved to Florida. Um, and the rest is history. Yeah, that's an amazing story. And uh, I think it's also a little bit of a story about the, the early internet or, or the earlier internet. I and mean, we kind of take for granted now um, how much access we have to everything and how much information we have to everything. But, you know, in, in that was such a revelation. I mean, for me, and it sounds like for you as well, of just like being able to find people who were like you or had common interests to you and you know, to be able to make a connection like that, that ended up just like so radically altering the, the course of your life leads to you moving to a different place, taking up this thing that ends up becoming your profession 20 years later. I mean, it's wild to think how much of that couldn't have happened or, or how much harder it would have been for it to happen anyway uh, in, in an era without the internet, just like being exposed to a single person who said like, hey, this is a thing that's possible for you to do. And then you know, you can just take that and run with it. Absolutely. And I credit my stepdad for that too, because I didn't have much exposure to the internet until he and my mom got married. So yeah, without, without the internet, without that connection, I don't know, you know, if there were alternative paths where I fell into poker or not, but I'm just eternally grateful for, you know, the path that happened in this reality that led me to, playing this game for such a long time and really kind of finding purpose and fulfillment in my life. So you were playing live poker in Florida kind of right around the time when the boom was, uh, was like just taking off. Yeah. I was playing on the boats, the cruises to nowhere. Um, so that was my first experience playing, playing poker and it was all limit hold'em. There was really no, no limit cash game. The tournaments would be no limit, but all the all the cash game was pretty much limit poker, and yeah, I, I remember. I think I was saving money to move to Florida when MoneyMaker was like on TV at Applebee's, you know, in the bar area and just <laughs> on the screens, you know. So a little bit of, of extra feeling of motivation, like you know, that's that's going to be my life one day. It was almost it, it was almost like a sign. I don't know if he felt this way, but for me, the guy's name is Moneymaker. Like that that almost felt like a sign for me that this was something I should be doing. <laughs> and he was from Nashville, you know. He was from he was from my home state. He was an accountant, 
you know, didn't really have much poker experience. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it, it, it was amazing. You know, it was just like a, an omen, like, like you said that, yeah, this, this thing's possible and maybe, maybe this is what I should be spending my life force pursuing. And that actually panned out for you. You know, I mean, I, I don't know how many people of that era um, had that idea of, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a professional poker player. I guess you know, a fair number of people like made it for a while and, and you know, either it got too tough, they just decided they wanted to do something difficult or <laughs> something different. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure quite a few uh, people, you know, had the same story of, you know, they were waiting tables or doing something like that and saw money maker on TV and said like, Hey, that seems better than, than the thing that I'm doing. And um but, and, and it was delusional, you know, and, and, or I don't know, it was delusional, but it didn't work out for them. And, um, what do you think, you know, set you apart? Why, why did you succeed in that when so many other uh, young people with a dream did not? I guess because it wasn't really ever fully about money for me. Knowing what I know now, I don't think money is a great driver for lots of things, but for me, the strategy of spades was what I loved the most. And it was what I cherished and just, you know, like I said, I, I was obsessed with, you know, spades theory, just writing in my notebook in lit class, spades strategies. And so like, I guess having that experience playing cards and being somewhat successful at spades, like having a good winning record, feeling like I'm, achieving a mastery of this one card game likely gave me more confidence in pursuing a different card game at a high level. So I think those, those are probably the major factors that I just, as a human being, I love strategy. I love strategy games. I loved pursuing mastery in spades. And so cards or uh, yeah, poker is another card game and that gave me confidence and also just, yeah, it's just, the strategy has always been first and foremost to me, uh, the thing that I love the most about playing poker. And I don't know that that's necessarily true for every human that pursues poker at a high level. I remember we used to talk about, and, and I think at this point, the, um, the, the strategy-oriented people have, have more or less fully won out, or there's just a few, a few holdouts. But uh, there used to be a lot of talk of like, there are two different types of professional poker players or people who come from, from two different walks. Um, there are the people who kind of come from like the games background, uh, you know, spades, I think is the less common story, but uh, backgammon or bridge or, you know, some of those magic. other uh, games. Magic. Yeah, magic. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, chess. And then there's the people who came from gambling, but, you know, were like in the casino gambling at something else and then said, oh, maybe I'll try gambling at, at poker and, and sort of found. And I guess the idea is that those folks are maybe more like intuitive or, or feel players as opposed to like strategy oriented um, players. And yeah, I think it's not a coincidence, yeah, obviously, but uh, at this point, we don't really have those conversations anymore. Like, I think there are not too many people of, the, of that latter sort who are um, kind of still able to start off in, in poker and, uh, and and make it. Yeah, I, I fully agree. It, it's It's tough, you know, now that things have you know, there's more tools available to upgrade your game. There, there's more poker podcasts. There's more YouTube strategic videos. There's courses. There's just a lot of tools that human beings have access to today that have raised 
the quality of play kind of across the board that you have to invest in those tools if you really want to have a shot these days, in, in my opinion. What were the resources that you, I mean, when you were kind of first learning in that era and like strategy always having been important to you, were you immediately trying to like work out your own? I mean, I know you mentioned like reading the books and stuff, but I guess like how much were you doing um, independently versus uh, you know, bringing in strategy material from from other sources? Like the, the stuff available at that time was, um, you know, there was only so much of it. Yeah. Uh, my resource was Jason. And that's pretty much it. You know, him and I discussed poker with every waking breath. You know, we would do doubles on the cruise, you know, so you basically get on the cruise ship, you spend about an hour or so making it to international waters, you play for three or four hours, and then you spend an hour coming back. And in those hours of going there and coming back, we discussed poker in the lines getting onto the cruise, we discussed poker. Uh, because it was like an hour to drive to the cruise from his house, we would go to Wendy's in the parking lot <laughs> to talk about poker for three or four hours, you know? And it was just pure strategy. And I think a lot of a lot of it really back in back in those days for him and I to kind of dive deeper into what we talked about was human psychology. I think understanding human beings and how they're approaching poker and the mistakes that they make was probably the bulk of what we talked about, you know, trying to read people, live tells, um, just figuring out, you know, uh, good bluff lines and when we should be calling down and things like that. I think that was, that was the major resource. And I don't think that it took a super long time for me to start giving value back to him as well. You know, like I said, I spent three or four months just purely obsessed with playing cards. Jason, in the beginning, was kind of a nit. <laughs> he just, you know, he was winning by not playing many hands. Um, and through our discussions, uh, talking about strategy, I think that really opened his eyes up to just a more aggressive style of poker, because I think that's kind of how I've, I lean like as a human, just on the aggressive side uh, in, in games naturally. And that there was a lot of good things that, that came from that early on. And yeah, so we both kind of as they say, you know, iron sharpens iron. We just sharpen each other's skills because we were both obsessed with the strategy of poker. Um, so yeah, that I think that that was the major resource. I didn't really use two plus two. I, I've never really been a a board warrior. I've never been really big in poker forums uh, or really any kind of forums. Like not in spades forums, not in any. MMORPG that I played, like Asherod's Call. Uh, there are message boards and forums for that. I, it just, it's not really how I made, I guess. So having that one to one time with him was kind of everything and really set the stage for uh, just me more fully realizing my potential as a poker player. 
my first thought when you were describing all that commuting of you know driving to the the port and then spending another hour getting out to international waters before you could actually even start playing you know my first thought was like well that's just tanking your hourly rate you know <laughs> spending all this and, but then you know what you made clear which which makes sense is you weren't wasting that time at all you know that was the time that you were spending um I guess formulating strategy and, and you know, just kind of getting better at the game in general, which I think, you know, I think there's a, a powerful lesson there in terms of uh, how you spend your time and, and also like what the job of professional poker player is like, it's not just playing. Um, and I think the, the people, I mean, I guess maybe there are some people who have, you know, gotten good or, or stayed good purely through playing, but I think that, you know, having that time for reflection and, and strategizing, I mean, both active studying in the form of, you know, reading or, or, or taking in material, but I think also, like you're talking about the time to, to think for yourself and to talk with other people is, um, I mean, probably still a neglected component of the game, right? I feel like it's not something that we actively talk about that much compared to time spent playing and time spent, you know, really actively studying as opposed to like reflecting. Yeah. You touched on something there that I think is very important and a lesson that I learned early on in spades because I studied spades a lot and I would play against folks who had played like, you know, 10 or 20,000 spades games, which was exponentially more than I probably ever played in my life. You know, I probably played three to 4,000 games of spades. I mean, maybe more. I don't know. I'm guessing right now. <laughs> um, I, I can't remember back that far. But there were folks that had played a ton of spades, and they were terrible. Like, they just, you know, they had a losing record. It didn't seem like they kind of understood the strategy. They just weren't very good, which as a 14 or 15 year old was kind of shocking because of how I approached playing spades and kind of how I approached doing other competitive things. It was like, wow, like why are these folks not learning? Why are they not like elite after playing so many games? So that was something that, that I had a visibility on before I started playing poker was that just because you play a lot of a game does not mean you're great at a game. You know, you have to do the behind the scenes work. You have to try to understand things. You have to try to be active in your growth and development um, in whatever it is that that you pursue. So, yeah, I mean, I, I learned that lesson early on. And going back to, you know, what you said before or your earlier question about um, why I think I made it, whereas other people may not have, it wasn't as if it was planned or tactical that we would talk about poker on the drive there and on the way home and in the Wendy's parking lot. And before we went to sleep at night, it was just natural. It was, you know, we were just compelled to, because we loved, we loved the game that much. And I think that really plays a major role in whether or not you make it playing this game or not. Like, do you love this thing so much that you just want to talk about it 24 hours a day, especially early on in your career. Because I think that's, you know, it's one of the ingredients of what it takes to be successful in this field, you know, for a sustained period of time. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And it's one that I um, struggle with um, as I got more into poker and, develop 
friendships with professional players and better players than myself, to this day, I'm still like that, where that's the number one topic that I want to talk about is poker. And a lot of these guys, I mean, probably Andrew included, like this is their job. So they don't want to talk about this shit in their leisure time. But for me, that's all I want to talk about all the time. And so I agree that that was one of the things that helped me along is, um, you know, having this be my option number one for topics of conversation, even if it's not, like you said, tactical. It's just the thing that I'm most into. So, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't feel like work. So, like having that um, mindset makes uh, poker study feel more like uh, leisure as opposed to work. And I think that's an important um, key to getting better. Yeah, and you know, anecdotally, I- I've been in this game. God, close to 20 years. I can't believe I've done anything for 20 years. Like that's just (laughs) weird to me. Um, I've I've been in this game for a long time. And this past year, as I I alluded to earlier in the conversation, I haven't put in a ton of volume this past year. And yet I feel like my poker game has grown the most that it's grown since those early days in Florida talking with Jason through you know, doing hundreds and hundreds of private coaching sessions, uh, analyzing data, having these high-level conversations with folks in my community who are you know, high-level crushers themselves, just teaching other people, learning how to communicate concepts more effectively. All of these things have really led to, I can confidently say, right now that I'm the strongest poker player that I've ever been. And it's not really even close. And I kind of look back at the way that I thought about poker even a year and a half ago with uh, some level of embarrassment, right? Where, where I'm like, wow, I, I can't believe that that was how I thought of the game. Um, but I, I guess that is one of the, that's yeah, one of the, it's one of the things that happen with progress is, you know, we look back on our past selves and we're like, wow, like, I can't, I can't believe I I was getting that so wrong. Um, which I think is ultimately kind of a a good thing. It, it shows that you are learning, you are growing, but yeah, this, this past year, despite not playing much volume, building out courses, doing all the things that I've done, it's just been amazing for my ability to make better decisions at the poker table and play at a much higher level than really I ever have before. I have to imagine we've got some people listening right now who are um, waiting with bated breath to hear an example of uh, something that that you feel like, you know, even looking back on Brad six months ago or something, uh, what a fish to to think in those terms. Is is there anything that you can um, point to? Um, Well, Like I said, from the very beginning, right, when I played poker, it was about the psychology. It was about people. It was about what people do. And this past year, by looking at large amounts of data and understanding the mistakes that human beings just typically make playing this game has just given me better visibility over their strategies, right? Like um, fish fold too much. Recreational players, weaker opponents, they fold two bets way more than you think, which makes them very bluffable, right? It makes bluffing quite profitable. Um, That's something that 
I didn't really have good visibility of over a year ago, uh, which is not intuitive. It's not something that like we sort of realize in game, um, the amount of people who will bluff taking, you know, very specific lines, uh, just understanding the pot odds model, just infinitely better knowing that like when X scenario happens, you pretty much need to be calling with any pair. Uh, all, all of those things are, are kind of what I'm talking about. Just way more clarity and visibility on common spots that you get into when you're playing, playing cash games, um, which, you know, ultimately when you can sort of make these decisions kind of automatically with confidence that they will make money in the long run, uh, it just frees up so much mental bandwidth for the more complex hands that really merit uh, a lot of deeper thought. Uh, because poker is a very intense activity, at least. I, I think if you're doing it right, it's a very intense activity where you have to invest a lot of cognitive energy. And so, yeah, I mean, that's... Ultimately, I guess what I'm talking about is just, yeah, understanding more deeply the the flaws of weaker opponents and some of the flaws of stronger opponents as well that make those hands that I play kind of automatic. Where, yeah, I just I I couldn't can't imagine like folding in spots that I used to really struggle with or have to invest a lot of energy into like figuring out what villains available bluffs are, et cetera. Like I just kind of, I just kind of know now, you know, I, I, I hope that makes sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of the uh, unconscious competence from, um, well, I got it from Jared Tendler's book. I don't think it's original to him, but that idea of like, you know, you, you learn something to the point where it's not something you have to actively like think about anymore. And as you say that like freeze up, bandwidth to then focus on on new things absolutely and there's there are certain situations like okay here here's like a, a tangible example where rags turn pairs into bluffs too often right like this is something that i've gained visibility of in the last year and you know there were hands on card player um oh man uh, my mind is blanking who's the australian uh Adamo, Ad Adamo, 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 yeah, Adamo, yeah. There's a hand breakdown where he was playing. I was going to say Hashem, which shows you how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> he he played a hand against Jake Schindler, um, who kind of coincidentally is from Florida um, as well. And I've, I played against Jake when he was kind of coming up um, in cash games. So they played a pot together where Ad Adamo. Um, check raised uh, a small value bet that Jake made on the river. Jake tanked and folded, and Ademo turned a pair into a bluff. And I remember like reading that hand history and thinking, like, yeah, <laughs> it's obvious, right? Like the the available bluff that Ademo has is turning a pair turning a pair into a bluff. Um, and that's just, you know, when I, when I would have read that hand history like a year ago, I wouldn't have really had a clear idea of the available bluffs that Adamo would have had. But now over this past year, um, it's like, oh, yeah, like I, I see it way more clearly now, I guess. And that's a more tangible example, I guess, of, of what I'm talking about. So you've mentioned uh, data a few times, and we just had uh, Michael Lukic 
on here who and he also you mentioned in his interview that he had done some some work with you can you say a little bit more about you know how you're um how you're using data to arrive at some of these conclusions yeah so i i coached lukic um last year i can't remember how he actually fell into my community or how that relationship started um but like so okay so let me think about how to how to describe this the way that the way that I think about poker um, as a simplified thing is like rock paper scissors, where like a GTO strategy is just totally randomizing, right? There's randomizing your rock paper or scissors. There's no way for your opponent to gain an edge against you, and within the world of data. What data shows you is that, say, I have every game of rock, paper, scissors that Carlos Welch has played in his entire life, right? And I know that he chooses rock 48% of the time on his first throw. And if it's a tie, he chooses paper then 58% of the time, right? Um, that sort of bridging the gap between what balanced play, you know, the bridging the gap between like balanced play and then understanding the mistakes that Carlos is making so that I can capitalize on them. So it's looking at um, a database of hands and just seeing where villains are throwing paper 52% of the time on their first throw and creating counter strategies based on, based on that. And this is kind of like population data, right? I mean, I, I guess sometimes maybe you're doing things for specific players, but in general, it's Never. more just getting a sense of like, no. Never specific players. It's more population. Yeah, just getting a... So just getting a general sense of like the field doesn't, you know, check raise rivers enough or something like that. Exactly, exactly. And I guess to be clear, the data can show a lot, but it doesn't show everything. And there's still a lot of room for nuance um, in the game of poker, uh, one thing that I've come to respect more than I ever have over the past year is just the enormity of the game tree, how rarely some situations happen, um, and how those situations, you know, you're never going to get enough data on them to, to kind of understand what's going on or what the average player's likely to do. But just using kind of what you understand about human beings early in the decision tree and then applying that um, to some spots deeper in the tree. Uh, just as, as an example, I do database analysis with my wolves and with a few of my private coaching students. Um, and just, just to be clear, wolves are his nickname for his students. He doesn't have actual wolves. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's they're actually the names for my my coaching for profit folks who are. That's quite a twist to throw us in the last yeah, fifteen minutes of the interview. Throw, yeah. throw oh, I, also have wolves. I have wolves. Yeah, I teach them poker. Um, it's, it's part of my life. Um, all credit all credibility goes out the window. Um, but so doing a database um, analysis of a student, they send me fifty to a hundred thousand hands, and we try to find leaks in those 50 to 100,000 hands. You would think that you could find 
leaks deeper in the decision tree or a fair amount of leaks with a data set of 100,000 hands. You can't. Most of it is early decision tree issues, you know, pre-flop defending the big blind versus min opens or 2.5 X's or three X's, um, three bet, whether you're, whether or not you're three betting enough, um, your C bet percentage and check raising the flop kind of in, in aggregate, you can't even really get, get good visibility on like different textures where they're check raising because in a hundred thousand hand sample, you, you just can't, there's just not enough hands. So like, that's something that, that I guess it, was somewhat surprising to me was like, even with a hundred K database analysis, you, you can only see like really the, the early phases of the game, which I guess, you know, if you really think about it, it makes sense. But um, yeah, now I've lost my whole train of thought. I'm thinking about raising wolves here. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to jump in and, and, and say that I kind of had that same realization with, you know, analyzing my own data and that of my students is um, how the sample size issue can confuse some people because like you said, 100,000 hands sounds like a lot and it is a decent amount for pre-flop data because that sort of um, sample size um, converges over a smaller number of hands. But if you're looking at say like um, river decisions, just because you have a hundred thousand hands doesn't means doesn't mean you've been in a hundred thousand river spots. That may only be like five hundred spots, depending on how often you get to the river. And so, when you're doing a data, when you're doing data analysis, you can't just talk about the number of hands. You have to talk about the number of decision points for that specific thing you're studying at the time. Yeah, and if you just think about it, like you you vpip like twenty five percent of hands, right? So like that hundreds kind of cut down by 75% straight away, you know, that's right. 25,000 hands. And then how many of those hands actually make it to the river? Uh, something like 10,000, 10 to, yeah, I guess probably, probably around like 10,000 of those hands make it to the river. Um, and then you have two bet pots, three bet pots. You have pots where you're the preflop raiser. You have pots where you're the preflop caller you are in position, you are out of position. Um, and at every stage of the tree, that information gets diluted, uh, which, you know, that kind of falls in line with the second way that I coach. Um, and that's by reviewing plain explained videos that are sent to me by my private coaching students. And, and those, those, while they're very zoomed in, and more micro analysis, uh, you can help coach guys on, on broader levels by understanding how they think about the situations that they're in so that they can apply those, uh, those concepts moving forward so that they can work on specific areas where maybe their thought process is weaker. Um, and, and really that's sort of key for me is this mix of macro analysis and micro analysis all kind of working in tandem uh, together. And, you know, I mentioned the wolves and what one major change that I've made this year is I, I'm not selling private coaching packages like right now. I'm not doing, not bringing on any more students. Um, all of my energy is focused on coaching these guys up 
in the uh, my, my coaching for profit cohort, um, and then eventually staking groups of guys for cash games. That's really, at, for me, like my brand is chasing poker greatness. And for me, that that's my version of chasing poker greatness, whether, you know, I can take these human beings and help them become, uh, my, my ultimate goal would be 10 BB per hundred winners at the biggest stakes that they can possibly play. And it's a project that, you know, I'm, is very near and dear to my heart. I'm very passionate about it. And that's where, yeah, the bulk of my energy is going to be moving forward. I think, uh, you know, like Poker Tracker and some of those other tools are, are kind of misleading in, with the stuff that you were just talking about where, you know, there's so many, I mean, I haven't counted, but I think like literally thousands of statistics that Poker Tracker can like give you numbers for. And I mean, I, as a, I mean, I think I'm using Poker Tracker a lot more than like the average user of it is. And I'm using, you know, not even 1% of those things. <laughs> um, and like, I th- and I'm still getting tons of value. Like, I don't mean to suggest that it's like, I just think a lot of that is, you know, you're not ever going to have a meaningful sample on, um, you know, turn three bets or something like, you know, just not, uh, it's it's like so much of that stuff, but I I think it it is, you know, for people, and I certainly had this reaction when I, you know, first got a tool of that power and I thought like, oh, if only I could like learn how to use all these different stats and it's really just like, uh, you know, in the education world, an attractive distractor, like it's, um, that's just not where the value of the tool. It's not that it's not a valuable tool. It's just you know that those are, are, I think, literally useless. Yeah, I mean, it goes to show you too. Like for folks that primarily review on like HUD stats to make a decision, shows you how faulty that method of making decisions while you play poker is. Because even if you have you know fifty thousand hands on a specific player or a hundred thousand hands it's really difficult to use that to create a map of how to exploitatively play against that specific villain because of a few things, mostly because that's probably not enough data. And secondarily, um, at least at least for me, I hope that with every 100K sample that I turn out, by that 100,000th hand, I, I'm not the same player that I was on hand yeah. one. So that that's another way that like that information could be misleading and yeah so hud the hud is great the databases are great as tools um but really you can't let you can't use the hud stats um to make your decisions for you you still have to go beyond that they're great at aggregating information and giving you kind of a clue or keeping track of where the strong or weak players are at your table. But for me, like that's their best use case. This I think connects with, you know, you have had an emphasis on psychology or, you know, like from, from your early uh, days getting better at, at poker of wanting to understand people and how people think and, and what motivates them. And I think we often think of that as being kind of the opposite of, you know, like there's like the numbers people and then there's the more like empathetic people who are kind of understanding their opponent. But like really you need to combine those things. So you need to understand like, why is it that people don't three bet enough? It's not just arbitrary. Like some people three bet too much, some people three bet not enough. Like there are specific people who three bet too much for specific reasons. And there are specific people who don't three bet enough. And like, they also have specific reasons. Personally, I find it harder to connect with that stuff online, like around the table, I can get a much better sense of kind of like what's, what's driving people. Um, 
aside from it, I, I truly think there are very few people who are like strictly EV motivated. I mean, obviously recreational poker players are like literally not like they're there to have fun and making money, of course, is, is part of the fun. And most people are trying to play well at some level, but like ultimately people are doing things that are fun for them and like avoiding things that are stressful for them to some degree. And I think even for a lot of professionals, there's an element of that. Like, I, I think even a lot of professionals are not fully honest with themselves in terms of like, other motivations they might have besides just pure EV maximization. But if, if I'm understanding you correctly, it, it sounds like part of what you're doing is kind of like connecting psychology with data or, or sort of like reading some psychology into the, into the data. Is that uh, accurate? Yeah. I mean, we all as human beings, and, and this is something that I see a lot in the plain explained videos that are submitted to me human beings are fundamentally flawed <laughs> just uh to be um just perfectly balanced random number generators uh decision makers at a, at the poker table and i think one of the reasons is like you said you know human beings are emotional creatures and those emotion emotions create narrative in our minds and those narratives can lead us to avoiding the possibility of suffering um, or avoiding uncomfortable spots. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've reviewed a video of a session and they've said something along the lines of, I'm just going to fold the turn because I don't know what to do if I face a riverbed. And mm -hmm. that's just saying, you know, I think calling the turn is profitable, but I don't know what to do if they bet the river. So like if you if you imagine on a long enough timeline of avoiding that one situation, how do you get better about discerning whether or not you should call that riverbed through repetition? Because you never make it to that node, right? Um if somebody's under three betting or over three betting, again, like there's some sort of narrative in their brain that's that's driving those actions. You know, I, I coach very high level guys that are playing higher stakes, and you know, one of my students doesn't call enough on the river, and with each of those hands where they don't call enough, the, the narrative that they express is, you know, I've got better hands to call in this situation, right? It's like, there's always a reason that's kind of justifies some kind of inefficiency. And most of the time, it's just built into who we are as people. We feel anxiety. That anxiety leads us to making a decision that, yeah, may be rational. It may not be, but we feel like it is. And yeah, I mean, that's just a, a large part of it. And you're dealing with human beings, like I said, and human beings are kind of weird creatures. Um, and all of those psychological thoughts, all of those things, to me anyway, kind of explain the why behind, you know, why some specific villains under bluff or over bluff or, you know, why recreational players like under raise the river or don't do a great job of maximizing value on the river. Um, yeah, I think that that strikes me as a fantastic place to, um, to leave off uh, a great point to end on. Is there anything that you want to, um, to, to leave people with, you know, where can they go to, to get more Brad Wilson, that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, chasing poker greatness.com. And, 
One, one more thing that kind of just popped into my head as I'm, yeah, please. I'm making these wolf presentations and I'm just fully involved in this process, kind of obsessed with uh, building out this program. Um, one thing that I, I thought of the other day as it relates to really all of our poker careers, um, if you imagine yourself as a factory, right? Just every hand that you make is your product. And every single product that you produce, every hand that you play needs care and attention. And it needs to be systematically analyzed for, you know, just systematically analyzed and thought about. And every hand that you play needs to be played with intensity. Every product you produce needs to be well-made. And in this world, you can't take hands off. You know, I think it's an easy thing to just say, well, I think I played that good enough or, you know, to get distracted when you're playing at one table and sort of lose track of a hand at another table. And ultimately, you know, those products that you produce in your poker factory result in you winning or losing money over the course of your lifetime. And there's only so many products that you will produce. And so, yeah, for uh, the thinking, thinking poker listener, just play every hand to the best of your ability with care, deep analysis, and take note when you feel like a hand that you played, a product that you create is of lower quality, or you just don't know what went wrong in this hand, you know, whether it be pre-flop, flop, turn, or river, and capture that hand for review at a later date. Because ultimately, the, the spots that crop up very often, very frequently, um, they make or break you as a poker player. And yeah, just, just be, be very careful, be thorough, be analytical, uh, and play every hand to the best of your ability because they all matter. If your pursuit is mastery, if your pursuit is to make money playing this game over a long period of time. Yeah, that's powerful stuff, Brad. Thank you so much. My pleasure, man. It's been, it's been great. Thank you guys for having me on. Um, I know, I think, I don't even know how many times y'all have been on CPG at this point. Carlos, something like four. Yeah, I, I probably got the record. Yeah, you, you got the record. Um, Andrew, Andrew's been on twice. So I thank y'all for being very generous with your time, um, the wisdom that you've shared with my community and on my podcast. It's uh, one of the joys in life, like I said before, is making connections with folks like y'all. So yeah, it's been an honor and pleasure being on y'all's show. Thanks, Brad. We Thank appreciated uh, having you. Take care. Yeah, 
So once again, rangetrainerpro.com and you'll want to use the code NITCAST30. N-I-T-C-A-S-T-30. Oh shit, that's the wrong code. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, Sean. I had, I had some back and forth with that. Um, let me make sure I'm getting this right. <laughs> I, I decided NickCast 30 was... We haven't been calling it NickCast as much anymore, and people are going to have a hard time remembering it, so I, I changed it to Thinking 30, and then I forgot that I changed it. <laughs> um, so I can probably just have them change it back to NickCast 30. That might actually be... I don't know. Do you, do you think I should? I guess Sean can patch it pretty easily. Uh, I'm fine with either way you want to go. Um, so you were saying that people don't call the show Nick Cast anymore? Yeah, I feel like that's kind of an like I, th- I think we might have a fair number of listeners who like wouldn't know what that that wouldn't be like meaningful to them. They might not know how to spell it, which is obviously important for us to get the credit for. <laughs> I mean, the the website is called nitcast.com, <laughs> so if they, if they don't know how to spell it, we got bigger problems than uh, just a promo code, because yeah, they, <laughs> they can't get to any of the other products. Okay, so we'll leave it as it is, and I'll ask them to change the uh, the code. I think that, I'm sure they can do it. <clears throat> yeah. 